see it coming through the choke. This is how it ends. Welcome to episode 2.16 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. With additional support from Black Diamond Peeps. Live, ski, repeat. And 10 Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, it's been quite a season for the podcast. It is bittersweet for me to say that this will be the last episode of our second season. I'd like to throw a huge shout out to everyone who has made this endeavor a success. Thank you for listening and supporting our common goal of creating a stronger community within the snow and avalanche world that will hopefully bring about a better awareness of staying safe while working and recreating in the snow and avalanche environment. I can't think of a better feeling than skiing cold, deep powder, especially when I know that I am making safe decisions based on good evidence sure is hard to sift through all of the human factors, keeping my emotions and ego at bay, maybe deciding to turn around when I have a bad feeling even when I'm seeing others get away with skiing rad lines, or perhaps having feelings of FOMO while I wait things to settle out for a couple of days. I hope through this podcast we've collectively increased some awareness, raised some questions, answered some questions, and created some discussion. Thank you to all of the contributors of the podcast. We value the time you took to share your knowledge and experience with the greater community. I got to give a huge shout out to our sponsors and supporters of the podcast. TAS Gazex has been installing both removable and fixed remote avalanche control systems, avalanche detection systems, avalanche fencing solutions, and weather stations to keep ski resorts, highways, communities, and infrastructure safe from avalanche hazard. JB, thank you for believing in me, believing in this project, and being willing to support this endeavor. Go check out their website at www.tas.fr. Don't worry, you don't need to be able to speak or read French. Black Diamond and Peeps. I've been working with BD for more than a decade, doing everything from setting up demos to driving the trade show booth across the West to mounting hundreds of skis for a 10th Mountain Division contract. I've tested their ski and snow safety gear while ski patrolling in the Wasatch, and most of all, used and abused their gear. They stand by their gear and I stand by their product. I've been loving my kit this winter. Layering up with their lightweight and well thought out soft goods, I head out the door with their Helio 105 ski, which is pretty much a quiver killer for me. Slap on my durable, lightweight, grippy glide light skins, which glide like a two wheel drive sedan down Little Cottonwood on a snowy evening. In the meat of the winter, I feel like I increased my margin of safety with their Jet Force airbag pack, complemented with shovel and probe, and always practice my beacon searches with their Peeps DSP Pro on the reg. 
BD and Peeps have you covered with everything you need, not just for winter adventures, but pretty much anything you want to do outside for any season. Thanks for your support. Check them out at www.blackdiamondequipment.com. Ten Barrel Beer had a humble start in the town of Bend, Oregon, just up the road from where I reside. Three friends had a passion for brewing and drinking beer and loved getting outside. Their brand has grown and spread throughout the West, and they are committed to brewing inspiring craft beer that is meant to be accompanied with good times and good adventures. Check out one of their brew pubs as you pass through Bend or Portland, Oregon, Boise, Idaho, San Diego, California, or Denver, Colorado. Or pick up a cold six-pack and drink beer outside. Thanks for the support. Cheers. Today's episode is from our Slabs and Slough archive, which is essentially stories of close calls and listener-based stories of experience with avalanches. I would encourage any of our listeners to reach out and share any story of accidents, good or bad decision-making, or your take on how you deal with the avalanche phenomena. I sat down with John Lemnotis as he recounts an accident he had late season in the front range of Colorado. It's a good reminder to all of us of the persisting hazard as we don flip-flops and shorts in the parking lot and are known to let our guard down. You're a skier and think you have a faster transition than those split borders? Think again when you go out riding with John. John just passed his AMGA ski guide exam to become a certified splitboard guide. Congrats, John. Sit back, crack a cold 10-barrel beer, unless you're driving, of course, and learn from John's story. John Lemnotis, thanks for sitting down with us today. Thanks for having me, Caleb. So, John, could you just introduce yourself, give us a little bit of history of what you do in the mountains? My name is John Lemnotis. I'm 32 years old, currently going through an AMGA progression, aspirant, splitboard guide. I've completed my rock guides course, alpine guides course, ice instructor course, and Hopefully, will one day achieve IFMGA status. I guide locally in the Wasatch in Utah, outside of Salt Lake City, for Red River Adventures and Transcendent Tours. My tool of choice in the mountains is a splitboard, Chimera Snowboards, local company. And I've been involved in the backcountry since I moved here after college in. December of 2009. My first avalanche course was February of 2010, and I've gone through the AAI, completed a level three avalanche course, shadowed a couple of area courses, and am pursuing avalanche education in addition to the guiding that I do. Nice. I'd like to add John lives full-time in his van which is super sweet i've heard everyone lives in a van now so it might not be as cool as it used to be <laughs> right so john uh, john's here to talk about a uh, incident that he was involved with 
in outside of uh, Frisco, Colorado. So set up set up the day for us. What was the day like? It was the end of May. May thirty first is when the accident actually took place, two thousand fifteen. So a couple of years ago. Uh, side note: my birthday is on May twenty ninth. So I was in Colorado visiting a good friend and a mentor in many ways, doing some rock climbing and backcountry skiing. A couple days prior to the accident, we had skied off of Quandry Peak, a beautiful 14,000 foot mountain with excellent ski descent. And it was basically the type of day that dreams are made of in the spring. It's, that's why you go to Colorado in the spring. So we had a lot of negative reinforcement that we had a few good days in the mountains leading up to the accident. There was a party of six, myself and five others. We showed up at the trailhead expecting a party of four and two additional friends came that day. One person in the group had forgot their ski pants. We got a little bit of a late start as compared to what we wanted to, maybe a half an hour to an hour behind. At the trailhead, there was evidence that it had rained the night before, and we didn't see that in any weather reportings or observations. Um, avalanche activity was pretty low from what I recall. Standard spring scenarios where late afternoon you have wet slides on any sunny aspects, things of that nature, pretty common. Get up early, leave early. Um, Were you guys, was there any freeze overnight? Ascending the route from the trailhead we left at, there was a poor refreeze down low, but the run was north facing, so we had a bit more confidence that the run would be in better condition than where we ascended. Mm -hmm. As we moved toward the tree line, the refreeze started to get quite a bit better, down to a few inches below the surface snow, so that was reassuring but down low was not very good. So already we have a couple of yellow or red flags, depending on how you like to think about these things. We continued to discuss our options as we went up the, the skin track, which had no other activity, no other signs of people had, had been there ascending that same way to ski Buffalo. The options were basically get to the top. If it's not good or we don't like the conditions, we can always just descend the same way we skinned up, even though it would be a crappy ski down. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't have been a big deal. We'd all done it before. Mm -hmm. We got to the top of the skin track uh, top of Buffalo. Conditions seemed pretty good. We were a little bit later to get to the summit. 
than we wanted to be, probably based on the group size and the later start. Transition was a little bit longer than we had wanted as well. Again, group size, likely. Myself and one other individual were leading the day for the most part, setting the up track and thinking out loud a lot, trying to create conversation within the group and decide whether or not we wanted to ski this run. It's not a run that gets skied very often from what I understand. At the time of us going out to ski it, I couldn't find any information on the internet about it. I've since been able to pull up one or two trip reports. Uh, contrary to the report that is on the Avalanche website, the Colorado Avalanche Center website, we had no intentions of skiing the Silver Coulard, which is off of Buffalo as well. We decided that the snow felt good at the top of the run and decided to ski it in short pitches, taking turns, one leading down and the other following all six descending uh, individually in terms of the, the legs. So no, no two people were skiing at the same time from safe spot to safe spot. About a thousand feet from the summit into the run, the snow started to really warm up. And when I stopped, I could get a small wet slide to release. The entire group came to me to the safe spot because we didn't have communication for me to tell them that that was going on. Myself and the other individual who were, for the most part, leading the day decided that we could safely ski cut the slope. And depending on how things released, we would decide whether or not to continue down. We ski cut the entire couloir. From wall to wall, the thing ripped. You could see the debris at the bottom of the run on the apron and the run out. It was massive. A wet, wet loose avalanche? Our trigger, our ski cut, I would probably call it a wet slab. Mm. Uh, at that point, hadn't quite warmed up enough to have those point releases naturally yet. So I wouldn't really call it loose. I would call it very slabby, probably the top four to six inches of snow just being rewarmed from the daytime heat mm -hmm. released. And the couloir at that point was 40 to 50 feet wide. Mm -hmm. and another 1,700 feet of vertical before you're on the runout apron. So a very large avalanche moving a lot of snow. We decided that the bed surface felt good. We were excited on how efficient the ski cuts turned out and continued to ski the slope one at a time from safe zone to safe zone. We got to a point in the run where there's a choke about as wide as you could make a turn or about as wide as a long pair of skis. I was the first to descend through that crux area 
and that's where the exit ramp is. So I skied down, or snowboarded down rather, stopped. There wasn't enough snow below that to ski all the way out to the apron, but there's a walk-off ramp. No sooner had I snowboarded to the edge, turned around to communicate with our partners, then they said avalanche and started yelling and I could see it coming through the choke, but the choke being so narrow, it just created a lot of energy, very localized, and I had nowhere to go. The bottom of this run is an 80 to 100 foot cliff if you're not on the walk-off. So I dropped to my knees, laid on my stomach, dug my snowboard edge in on my toe side. I did not have an ice axe with me or any type of tool. And I watched the snow just come at me and I thought, this is how it ends. I felt my snowboard hit rocks. I distinctly remember twice feeling impact on my legs and feeling the metal shear against a rock face and I lost consciousness and I came to my friends and partners tell me it was about a minute later after the snow had stopped going over the cliff they still had a visual on me I was not buried and I yelled up to one of our partners and I said that I was okay I knew that something was wrong with my leg I could feel uh, pain painful sensation but it wasn't enough to stop me from moving I landed with my back down the slope one leg was buried up to my knee the other up to my ankle I pulled myself up unhooked my boots from my bindings dug my snowboard out and I moved out of the danger zone from any hang fire that might come down as quickly as possible. I hobbled on my leg, not knowing really what was wrong. I just knew that something wasn't right, pain in my knee, and could communicate with my partners through yelling and cell phones, deciding that there was not a safe way for the other five partners to get down to me. They reascended the slope and before doing that initiated the call to search and rescue. Search and rescue then called my cell phone. Luckily we had cell phone communication there and started the rescue response. I was very nervous and scared and for some reason didn't like the safe zone that I had moved to initially and the adrenaline had started to wear off so I moved myself 100 meters or so to the skier's left of the, the runout zone for the avalanche and I would scooch on my butt and then pick up my leg 
move my leg to the side and then scooch on my butt again. And during that time, another massive avalanche came down, far larger than the one that had swept me over the cliff. It continually flowed over the cliff for more than a minute with large volumes of snow. And that happened again later in the day. And the whole time I thought that there was just going to be the bodies of my partners coming through there as well. Not knowing where they were on the slope, how they were reascending. So it was very nerve-wracking for me not knowing how I was going to get out of there and how they were doing. Trying to conserve my cell phone battery, not knowing if, if or when someone was going to come help trying to think about what I was going to do to just make it through the night. It ended up being six hours before search and rescue made it to me. It was starting to get dark. Uh, It took another six hours to make it to the trailhead, and they brought me directly to the emergency room from there. Every one of my partners had made it to the top of the ski run safely and descended back to the cars the way we had come up. So these, these avalanches were, were naturals, or, or were they triggered by somebody in the party? Natural avalanches. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's quite a, quite a story, John. What were the injuries that you sustained? I broke my tibial plateau, tore my meniscus, and had a minor concussion. Other than that, I was alive and well. Were you wearing a helmet at the time? Yes. So the rescue party ascended from the from a different trailhead than what you guys ascended earlier that day? Correct. Our tour plan had started at one trailhead and was going to end at a different trailhead due to our ascent route and our descent route. Mm. The ascent was up the southeast side of the mountain. The descent was down the north side of the mountain. What are some, some lessons learned from this accident, John? When I think about the events that happened and the tools that we were trying to use, I had used many of those tools before, including ski cuts mainly. What they teach you about ski cuts is if you're going to make a ski cut, you have to be willing to take the ride if you screw up. Luckily, we didn't take the ride from... 1700 feet up that ski run or else it would have been a really bad day instead of just a pretty bad day Mm -hmm. earlier in the spring i was touring in the wasatch in a pretty well-known area called wolverine cirque and i use ski cuts in that terrain in the spring on a fairly regular basis if if the situation warrants the use of that there's a couple of shoots where you can put a clean good 
safe ski cut in or put a rope on and make a ski cut rip the whole slope and ride the bed surface and that is a tactic that i had used just a few weeks prior but on a much smaller scale mm. the couloirs and wolverine cirque are between seven or eight hundred feet long we're not talking about a, a ski run that's almost three thousand feet there's a huge difference in that and our application of the ski cut on buffalo we failed to think about the thousand feet of snow above us that we had already skied as the day was heating up exactly we saw the positives of what we had done that we had created a safer environment to go down but we didn't think about the rising danger above us so looking at the whole picture is something that we could have done better and i think that's a major issue in why the accident happened you can't fight the conditions that the mountain is giving you or showing you in that case it was it was all over the mountain it was it was talking to us it was telling us that we shouldn't be there as soon as we cut that slope and saw it release so easily we should have said well fuck it let's go drink some beer <laughs> let's turn around and and apray uh, given the time of day that the rest of the party ascended back up to the top, um, you know, they were in some potential hazard there too, I would think. Absolutely. They said that they did not notice the same avalanches that I saw from the bottom, which caught me by surprise because from my perspective, they were massive avalanches. They had told me that they reascended via a rocky rib, so trying to piece together ridgeline terrain instead of going straight back up the couloir, which was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So that was very good decision-making on their part. Some of the other factors that I think played into this were the surprising group size. The fact that we had a couple of great ski days in comparably big terrain within just a few days prior, fairly stable weather since I had been in Colorado for the preceding week. We failed to think about the moisture content of the snow based on the rain that we saw at the trailhead which I don't remember exactly what the elevation of the trailhead we started at was in comparison to where we were going to end but it makes a difference mm. the poor refreeze until we were almost at the tree line makes a difference these are all small details that added up do you think you guys were lulled into 
a little bit of complacency just due to the nice weather, springtime conditions. I mean, I, I'd imagine you're probably skinning in a t-shirt. Absolutely. I mentioned that one person in the party forgot their ski pants. They ended up wearing a pair of cloth black diamond pants that are almost paper thin, and it was a non-issue, mm-hmm. warm enough all day. The weather played a part. I feel personally responsible in some ways in the fact that I didn't know the area as well as I would have liked to. I think I got complacent based on the experiences that I had had in the past and thinking that it was just another ski run. When my my knowledge of the area and of the snowpack and of the weather in Colorado is is and was not very good, mm. and that is a a big factor. So in many ways, I feel like I put myself in that position, and I didn't do the homework that was necessary, or missed some of those mm. red and yellow flags. You know, it can be tough when you when you think that you've mitigated the hazard, right? You guys put in an effective ski cut and that was that was a positive thing you mentioned. Um and so I think it can be really easy to focus on that and lose sight of the big picture, right? So that was one step in the one piece of the puzzle. Um but like you said, it it's really important to slow down at that point and look at the big picture. Absolutely. I think that you can use the same process of thinking for other snow tests as well, because what you're essentially doing with a ski cut is some sort of snow stability test. Mm -hmm. So when I think about other scenarios that I've been in where I will either affirm or deny whatever my hypothesis is for the day about the ski slope using calm tests or extended calm tests or even just hand pits, especially on new snow days. It's important to get out of that pit and get out of that test, that safety net. Sure, you could have gotten the result that you wanted to see but did you get it because you, it was the right result or did you get it because you wanted that result? Mm. And that one micro feature or test doesn't mean that on a macro scale your whole day is going to go the way you want it. That's a really good point. You know, these tests are, are designed to be tools to help you turn around, really, right? Not to continue. I agree with that. And I probably wouldn't have agreed with that statement five or six years ago, mm-hmm. which is interesting in the way we, we change our thinking. Mm-hmm. The way that I've used snow stability tests in the past couple of years since the accident the way that I try to approach 
ski runs, especially ski runs with larger consequences has changed since that run. I'll find myself not going out and seeking out that kind of terrain very often anymore. Mm-hmm. It has to be forecasted for very well. It has to be the right day. And sometimes that's tough in the Wasatch with all the the user traffic that we have here. But I don't want another experience like that. Yeah, I'm sure it was tough for your partners too, feeling somewhat helpless to not be able to get down to you, you know. That's that's a pretty tough aspect of it. Absolutely. I have to say a huge thank you to a couple of them in particular for helping me immediately after the accident. They met me in the emergency room and took me back to their house, drove me to surgery two days later, helped me start the recovery process in Colorado at their house, cooking me breakfast, lunch, and dinner, helping me do band exercises and start rehabbing immediately just to try to keep my mental status where it needs to be just to to be positive so you know who you are can't say it enough and can you talk a little bit about the search and rescue organization that helped you out absolutely so I have mixed feelings about this whether some people will agree with what I'm going to say or not I'm going to say it anyway I value search and rescue and what they do and they put their life on the line when people like me or others have these sorts of accidents and I can't thank them enough either. I think the process could have been smoother. I have a fair bit of training in these areas so I like to think that I gave clear, concise, good information as well as my partner who had communicated with Search and Rescue. When I was on the phone with them, I gave them a UTM coordinates of where I was based off of the GPS on my phone and my tour plan, which I had written in my little yellow notebook that I carry. They're not as precise as we would like them to be, but they give you a, a good idea of where to look once you have those numbers the caveat of the UTMs is that not everyone in the US uses them so a lat long would have been better Hmm. I think that was a hiccup they might have received the information I gave them and not used it because they're not used to it so uh, more continuity in how we communicate with these organizations would be good. Um, They kept good communication with me. I, I believe that was a positive. Some details were omitted and I don't know where that happened. There had been another very large avalanche lower in the canyon on the Silver Coulard on the same aspect of Buffalo and that avalanche path is visible before 
the ski run and avalanche path that I was caught in. So they had went to that debris pile first instead of continuing up canyon to where I was. And both my partner and I, during our communication with Search and Rescue, had said, we are not in the Silver Coulard. Mm. That was one negative. Um, Were they utilizing any air resources? They ended up using a helicopter to spot me. That is a huge challenge. I was wearing bright colors, but it doesn't matter when you're staring at the side of a huge mountain and you're looking for a little speck. Mm -hmm. Uh, I tried to help. I have an emergency tarp that I tied to my 300-centimeter probe and started waving it like a giant flag to hope that they would catch that waving in the air. Whether it helped or not, I I don't remember them saying but they eventually spotted me after flying in the area for about half an hour. And within 45 minutes to an hour after that, I saw the first member of the search and rescue come up to my position. From there, it was a technical lower and a sled down a six or 800 foot apron. So that was time consuming. Mm-hmm. When we got to the bottom of that terrain, uh, there was a paramedic with them, and I tried to abstain the use of medications, knowing that if I took the medications, I would have to go straight to the emergency room, and there was nothing that was going to be done to help me that night in the emergency room. At that point, when the when the first search and rescue members found me it was going to be dark soon so 7 p.m. maybe Mm -hmm. there were probably 15 members of search and rescue there at the busiest portion of, of time they built a Tyrolean traverse to cross a stream which I thought was overkill I felt like the sled that I was on could have been carried and passed across a narrower portion of the stream and it was a method that was more risky than it was worth but I also just suffered a pretty significant trauma so I may not have seen all the pieces to that puzzle. Mm -hmm. It worked, and I don't know whether it caused any more or less pain. (laughs) But after crossing the Tyrolean and getting back onto the ground, I said, it's time, pump me full of drugs. (laughs) (laughs) So the paramedic looked for a vein, could not could see a lot of veins I have pretty good ones but I was so dehydrated at that point I had been sitting on that slope alone for six hours before they made it to me I had maybe brought a liter of water maybe less if we were 
on a spring tour, only planning on taking one run. Mm -hmm. It's pretty common if I'm on a personal day to take a minimal amount of water and just rehydrate at the end of the day once we're back at the car or dehydrate with a beer, either one. (laughs) So severely dehydrated. They stuck me in both arms, couldn't get the vein, uh, kept rolling, both wrists multiple times in, in each location. I think it was probably on the seventh or eighth try that they actually got the IV in and let the drugs fly. And it was a, a tough descent out the trail. The trail was not completely melted out on the exit. They were using a litter that had a wheel underneath, so they were rolling mostly, just stabilizing on the sides. Had three to four people on each side at all times, extremely safe. I felt secure with all of that and can't thank them enough for getting me the hell out of there that night. It was dark shortly after we finished the Tyrolean and some of the members had to get out, go to work, do whatever they had to do. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for your help. And thank you to everyone who stuck with me the whole way, especially the paramedic. I forgot his name at this point, but that day I remembered his name really well. Mm-hmm. I would just yell his name and ask for drugs. <laughs> at one point, he said, I can't give you any more of this morphine or whatever it was he was giving me. Uh, I'm trained as a pharmacist as well. So I said, what else do you have? I know you can give me something else. So we talked for a minute and I got something else. (laughs) It was the most pain I've ever felt in my life Mm. through no fault of theirs. Right. Um, Made it to the trailhead where an ambulance was waiting in a neighborhood. There's people outside holding their dogs, watching what was going on. I probably would have been doing the same thing at about midnight maybe a little after midnight. We were at the emergency room shortly thereafter and had an MRI, x-rays. They said, you need to call this orthopedic. Did my research and decided that I would have the surgery in Colorado. And two days later, I was under the knife. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing your story, John. I'm sure you learned a lot. And it seems like your mindset has changed a bit since since this accident. And I think that's that's a good thing. That's a positive outcome, right? I think so. And I just want to reinforce the fact that it doesn't matter how much experience you have in the mountains. Because every day is different. And every mountain is different. Every ski run even. Be humble. Never be afraid to turn around, to tell your partners what's on your mind. If you don't have a good feeling about something, it doesn't matter. You have to be able to talk to who you're with and be very objective 
and why you're doing the things you do since the accident I've been to places like La Grave and Chamonix and Alaska and compared to the terrain in Colorado that's on a different level and I was legitimately scared in some of those places because of what had happened and am I making the right decisions in this terrain because I saw what could happen in that terrain so don't be afraid to say no there's always another day and a good life in the mountains is one that you can enjoy for a very long time Be safe out there. Have fun. Great. Thanks, John. Cheers. See ya. Thanks for sharing, John. It's stories of close calls like these that we can all learn from. Please reach out to me from my website, www.theavalanchehour.com, to share your story with our community. Also, reach out if you have any feedback for the show. I love hearing from y'all. Please take some time to rate and review the show on iTunes, and of course, subscribe. I'll be setting up another fall road trip tour, including a focus on Colorado this year. I've already got some unsuspecting people on my list that I'll be emailing soon, But if you'd like to be on the list or have ideas of who you'd like to hear from, please contact me. Thanks again to the sponsors of our show, TAS Gazex, Black Diamond Peeps, and Ten Barrel Brewing. Big thanks to all of my contributors and listeners. Music today was performed by Grammatic and Little Glass Men and made possible by the permission of the artists or through the Creative Commons license put together by freemusicarchive.com. Check out more of these artists' tracks from a link on my website. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. If you need any pro artwork or illustrations done, check out Mike at Mike T. That's TEA.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And finally, thanks for a great season. Till next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Wow.